in in the 80s when i was in marching band in high school uh, we would practice in the mornings and so would the football team and because of the time at the times that we were allowed on the field uh we got off in the marching band after all the football players but there was still a lot of time before school started so everybody would go to the library and unlike today to read a newspaper you actually had to get to a physical newspaper and they were on those bamboo rods that you stuck stuck the newspapers on at that time. By the time I got there, all the football players had grabbed newspapers. And of course, they grabbed all the newspapers that had sports pages. The only newspaper left was the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> For years, I read the Wall Street Journal. Um, and when I got to college and was planning on going on in physics, I ended up taking economics and double majored with that because it was so easy. And it was so easy because of all those years reading the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and so I'm an economist today because I was in marching band. So our high schoolers out there listening, take note, read a good journal every day and you too will be a great economist <laughs> or a great you know, political analyst. I mean, there are all kinds of good things in those newspapers. Mm -hmm. This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu hc. Welcome to the Howenstein Center's live Q&A webcast, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney. In today's webcast, we explore the cumulative impact of the coronavirus pandemic, government stay-home orders, government relief, and urban protests on our economy, both here in West Michigan and across the nation. We have three months of data to pour over since the onset of the pandemic in the U.S., but those data need to be interpreted. And our guide is my good colleague, the very capable Professor Paul Isley. Paul teaches economics and is one of the two associate deans in the Seidman College of Business at Grand Valley State University. And more tellingly, he has been dubbed the economics guru of West Michigan. My conversation with the guru will go 35 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers. So feel free to begin sending your questions to us right away using your Zoom toolbar to do so. Thank you for joining me on today's webcast, Paul. It's not often that I have a guru on the show, but what an exciting time to be an economist. Yeah, there, there's, we were seeing things in the economy that no one has ever seen before, so. We're gonna have fun exploring that. Well, the data came out just a few days ago, Paul, showing that Michigan's May unemployment rate was third highest in the nation at 21.2%. And during the previous month, April, it was 22.7%, which I read economists were calling an all-time high in this state. Why are we one of the hardest hit states? Well, the reason we're one of the hardest hit states is, is really because of the, the size of the shutdown orders that we had here in Michigan. Uh, and that was a direct effect of the uh, damage being done to the healthcare system in the Detroit area that required a more drastic action here than it required in other states. So what we saw was we were one of only five states in the entire United States that turned off construction. Um, we turned off almost everything uh, in the state in order to try and bring the virus under control. And in doing so, uh, it really brought spending to a grinding halt. 
Well, let's rewind the tape just a little bit. How strong was our West Michigan economy, relatively speaking, before the pandemic really hits? So let's go back to say late February and early March and you know, before it begins progressively spreading. Well, what we saw as we were exiting 2019 is that we had gotten ourselves into a shallow manufacturing recession already by that point in time. It hadn't spread to the rest of the economy, but we were already seeing manufacturing slow down. Um, and as we started the beginning of this year, it started to be hurt by the supply chain problems of the coronavirus in China. So that manufacturing side was already slow, already giving us some problems as we were entering the year. The service side and the retail side was still going strong. And there was a lot of strength and a lot of, uh, a lot of income being generated as we started the year. Okay, so summarize for us, please, which sectors were hurt the worst and which came through pretty strongly thus far? Okay, so what we saw, uh, not surprisingly for Michigan, uh, the places that were hurt the worst were uh, retail, uh, going out to eat places, uh, bars, and bars will be the ones that fare the worst as we go forward um, in Michigan. Outside of Michigan, it was the travel industry, uh, but it's such a small part of the overall West Michigan economy, it doesn't show up. Uh, but but that area really got hurt. Uh, and then what we started to see was manufacturing began to shut down. Uh, and we started to see healthcare get into a huge amount of problems. So if you look at the unemployment numbers, healthcare is actually one of the larger players in the unemployment numbers in Michigan. Yeah. And that's because if you weren't dealing with the COVID virus, you were unemployed. Uh, so if you were cleaning teeth, if you were uh, doing x-rays for things that didn't result to COVID, doing, uh, doing hip replacements, all of those things came to a halt and those people became unemployed. So as we've come out, that, that healthcare sector is coming back very quickly. The manufacturing sector is coming back very quickly. Uh, the construction type industries are. And what we're seeing are the restaurants and those types of places are, are still struggling a little bit because it's hard to convince people to go out to eat. And even if you do, there's not as many chairs as there used to be. So what you're saying, it sounds as if we're gonna, we have a chance of having a good summer yet. Uh, people will be really coming back into the marketplace. Confidence is going to go up. This is assuming we don't have another terrible wave of the pandemic. Now let's talk about, oh, I'm sorry, Paul, what were you gonna say? It's key not to have another, another big wave. And there's gonna be waves around the United States and we're gonna hear about them. I mean, we hear about Florida, we hear about Arizona. Uh, but right now, Michigan is, is, is holding things, holding its own there. Very good. Let's talk about the impact of unemployment insurance vis-a-vis -vis economic recovery. Mm -hmm. You have a striking way to put it all in perspective. Share with our viewers what you've been saying. Well, I mean, the unemployment number is huge. It's, it's, it's a big number, 20%. Um, but of that number, 1 million of those people in Michigan were getting unemployment benefits. Of that 1 million people, most of them were receiving a lot more money than they do normally. Uh, so if you look at the average wage earner in Michigan, they would have earned 20 to 25% more 
than they did before they, when they were working. So being unemployed was paying them more. Um, so if you looked at somebody earning 36,000 a year who had one child, uh, before they were earning, um, they were earning, I got it right here. <laughs> I had it right here. Um, they basically doubled their income. And so doubled, that, doubled it um, because of the stimulus check and the extra $600 from the federal government for the April and May, their income was double what they're used to seeing. And as a result, disposable personal income in the United States grew by 13% in April. We don't have the main number yet, but 13% compared to last year, not compared to the month before. Um, and that's that power of that stimulus money that's being put into the economy. That's gotta be a near record. Has that ever We've happened never, before? We have never seen a 13% bump in one month in, uh, in personal disposable income. It, it's stark, because if you actually look at the graph, it's this nice flat line over the last, uh, since the beginning of the series. And then all of a sudden it just goes boom, straight up. Uh, and and it's, it's stunning the amount of money that was put there. And it was put there because so many people were becoming unemployed. Uh, but because that much money was put into the unemployment system, this really is a problem for small businesses more than it is for individual people. Well, that gets into, I think, another question that a lot of our viewers would be interested in knowing more about. But the recession and now the recovery are impacting the classes in different ways. So the working class is experiencing this recession in a different way that the middle class is experiencing, upper middle class. Mm -hmm. Sort of tease out those differences for us, please, Paul. Yeah, I mean, if you were able to get unemployment benefits and you were in the bottom 50%, um, you're being made whole, you're being made more than whole, all right, as far as income earners. So what we start looking at is that next group, the small business owner, uh, the middle manager who, who was told, okay, you're going on 50% time now, or you're going to go on rotating furloughs, um, or you're taking a 25% pay cut. So what we're seeing is it's that next group, that 50 percentile to 75th percentile, that really had a drag on their incomes. And it's that bottom 50% where on average, there's people who don't, who obviously don't follow this, but on average they're doing as well or better than they were doing before. Uh, and that's what gives that huge savings rate. Well, let's talk a little bit about the rising savings rate. Again, uh, in, in our conversations, Paul, you have, have striking data on this and an interesting way of talking about it. Well, what happened was people's incomes went up. Their incomes went up on average 13%, but, but for individuals in that bottom group, you know, you could see double or triple in many cases. Um, and they said, oh, well, either number one, I can't spend money because there's no place to spend it on. Or number two, I'm really worried about the fall and I better have some money. So, what they did was is people started to save it. Um, in talking to, to people who rent houses for a living, um, out, of, out of 20 houses that I looked at, um, five of them had people who were behind on their rent before COVID. And in May, they're now current on their rent 
and several of them are paid ahead. Um, so what we had was this ability to catch up on your credit card payments, catch up on, on uh, your, your rent, all those things that you were behind on, because there was no place to spend any money. So that really hurts that small business owner. But for the individual, it means that you're gonna come out of this with sort of a clean start as long as the economy is restarted. We're dumping all of this starter fluid into the economy right now. And if the unemployment is still high at the end of July, it'll all have been wasted <clears throat> because the economy won't restart. So that's what we're really looking at right now. But if, if you have a whole class of people who on average are making more money staying out of the workforce, then isn't it going to be almost impossible to, to gin up the economy to its capacity because employers are gonna have such a tough time bringing them out of unemployment where they're getting you know, an adequate income to come back to work. Well, that adequate income ends at the end of July when that extra $600 a month disappears. Uh, so uh, depending on what the next stimulus plan may or may not look like, uh, there'll be a lot of incentive as we start going into July to make sure that you have your bases covered with a job. Uh, so that as you exit July, you still have an income. So it's slowed down our ability to do things right now. And that was by design. The people who did this designed this unemployment program to convince people to not go back to work so that they would stay at home and keep the virus from spreading. Uh, and so it was designed to do that. Now, as we're trying to restart the economy, that design is working against us. Yeah, and Paul, you're talking about a lot of things. It's clear that we've been in uncharted territory. Now, you crunch a lot of numbers. I'm just curious, from your personal professional viewpoint, what's the most surprising thing to you as an economist watching us trying to recover? Yeah, I think, I think the, the most surprising thing uh, to me is that it isn't worse than it was. I mean, April was a disaster. April is probably the worst month ever in the US history, as far as the economy goes, certainly in the 20th and 21st centuries. So um, it's, it was a disaster of a month, but to see the, the uh, <clears throat> back in May, where our retail sales were only 6% below the year before, um, and picking up as the month went along. To see uh, automobile sales in April be at their record low since the data was kept, uh, since data started on this series in the mid 70s. We'd never sold fewer cars in a month than we did in April. To, to, so that was around 9 million units to above 12 million units the next uh, annualized rate the next month. Um, to see that change is stunning. And a lot of that has to do with that tremendously large stimulus package that we put in at the front side of this. A few minutes ago, you were talking about small businesses and how they're having to take it on the chin right now. Do you have a measure for what percentage of small businesses, and, and please define small business, I can't technically <laughs> define the term, but what percentage of our small businesses will have to permanently shutter all right, well, there's a lot of different definitions of small businesses, uh, and 
They range anywhere from one to 500 people. Uh, I'm not really <laughs> thinking about those 500 people ones. If, if you're large enough to be able to access capital markets, chances are you're going to make it through this, okay? Uh, but what we can see is that we've had more Chapter 11 uh, filings in Michigan, in the west side of Michigan, uh, in June, than we did the three previous years combined, all right? A lot of that was Hopcat. Uh, Barfly Ventures was broken into many different parts. So when they declared bankruptcy, they, they had several bankruptcy slots that were going on. But even adjusting for that, it's, it's been a lot of reorganization time. So people have been trying to get a finger on that, uh, and it's still too early to perfectly tell. We knew that each, each first of the month that you made before businesses restarted, the more you'd lose. So we made it two and a half, we made it almost three full months before restaurants were able to restart uh, in, a, in a way that would generate more income. The industry surveyed their folks and Many of the uh, uh, many other business organizations have surveyed folks, and we keep getting numbers somewhere between 10 and 20 percent failing. Um, we've heard as much as 30 percent, but that's I don't that's too much, uh, and we've heard as low as five percent, but that's too little. So somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of restaurants, bars, and small retail. We'll, we'll go out of business during this time. And of course we- That's what puts legs on this recession. Those businesses not being there to rehire is what causes the backside of this recession to go longer than we'd like. All right. And of course we've had these historically unprecedented spending bills and all in all, how would you measure their effectiveness? I mean, when will we know when will we be in a place, Paul, where we can look back at the depths of this recession, especially in April, which you pointed out is probably all-time low for this country, but all-time spending from government at the same time to try to, to, to buoy up our businesses. When can we say whether these spending measures were successful or not? How many months of data do we need? <laughs> well, we can already say the short term they've been effective because we've already brought us from what was looking like the, the Great Depression of the 1930s to, to a moderate recession in one month. Uh, what we're going to have to do is wait until the fall because uh, these measures, most of them end as we go through the end of summer. And so the key will be how fast the economy restarts as we get done with this. So here in Michigan, we already know we went from close to a million people on unemployment benefits uh, at the beginning of May uh, to just, uh, just a little bit less than 600,000 at the beginning of June. Um, we know that after that, restaurants started to reopen, retail started to reopen. Um, and so we expect that we will start July with single digit unemployment here in Michigan after having been at 20% and above in, in April and May. And the, the, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics say that that number was an underestimate because of some, some calculation problems that they have when things get that radically bad that quickly. Um, so it was likely even higher than that. And, and so to go from 
20% to single digits and do it in the span of two months uh, is going to be amazing. Uh, and we're going to be looking for that. And then we're going to be looking again later in the fall. Um, things like the airline industry were given money, which said, we're giving you this money, but you can't lay anybody off until October. Um, well, airlines aren't going to be back to anywhere near their load factor that they were in February when they reach October. And so we're going to see a second hit to the economy as we move into that. Oh, right before the election. Right before the election, which is why many people think we'll have a second stimulus, because both sides, uh, both sides need that stimulus in order to uh, to uh, convince their folks that they should be reelected. So, if you were king of the world, Paul, how would you tweak what the recovery and the incentive programs have looked like? What what would you have done differently now that you had a couple of months to think about this? Well, and and first. This happened so fast. We shut down 40% of the US economy in two weeks, okay? So we had to dump stimulus in really, really fast. And there is no way at the beginning of that that you can design a stimulus package that's perfect. There's absolutely no way. You just gotta throw a ton of money in and realize that some people aren't gonna get it that should have gotten it, and some people are gonna get it who shouldn't have gotten it. But you need to do that to save the entire economy. So, so First of all, getting a big package, getting it done, getting it done quickly, getting it done in a bipartisan way, really fast as we were entering April was really, really important when they did that. Um, so now we have to be thinking about some of the interactions that happened. We know that it's uh, businesses that were really small had a lot of things, businesses that were in here had a lot of things. There's a gap there, businesses between about 40, and 150 employees didn't get the types of things they needed to stay alive. Uh, so, and they don't have access to capital markets. So we need to deal with that. Um, we, a lot of this money came out of the states. Uh, and so if we don't want the states to really be ramping back on, on things like education and, and, and programs and other types of things, there's going to need to be something to support the states. Uh, and other than that, we're going to see austerity at the state level while we see this expansionary stuff at the federal level. Uh, and that's, that's going to get us out of whack. So I think those well, are things we're looking at. Well, this actually segues to something I've been dying to ask you, and that's, you know, since we're borrowing from the future, from our children's future earnings, Paul, why doesn't debt seem to bother anybody anymore in either party? Yeah, well, the, the number one, debt, debt matters, but it matters differently than most people think it does. Because okay. um, the national debt is a lot differently than an individual debt. Uh, the U.S. economy doesn't have to save money for retirement because it's not going to earn money at some point. It, it's going to grow for, for as long as it grows. If the U.S. stops existing, then it doesn't have any debt anymore. So, um, so what we do know is debt that's used to buy something that makes things better in the future is good debt. So as an individual, when you buy a house, if you buy a house within your correct range, it's considered a good, invest, a, a good debt because you're purchasing something that increases in value, uh, that it... Uh, it's not 
living beyond your means. But if you use debt in a credit card, that's a bad debt. And so now you're, you're trying to extend your consumption beyond what you can. So short-term debt like this, where we dump a bunch of money in in a short period of time, that's transitory and we can deal with that. Um, what's more problematic is that systemic debt that is growing in the United States and really comes to a head about 10 years from now where we're gonna have troubles handling all those things that we say that we want to purchase. We say we want social security, we say we want Medicare, we say we want Medicaid. Um, if those are the things that we want, then we have to find ways to pay for them. We haven't done that as a society. We've been hearing a fancy new term bandied about, um, modern monetary theory and, and would you please explain to lay people, uh, viewers, and certainly me in this category, what is modern monetary theory and how, how does it differ from old-fashioned Keynesian thinking and earlier you know, iterations of monetary theory? Yeah. Well, I mean, Keynes said you spend money during bad times and you roll back that government spending during good times and you flatten out the ups and downs, okay? Monetary theory says, um, what you do is you try and keep interest rates relatively in a consistent pattern um, so that businesses know how to invest. And so therefore you grow faster. And so the bottoms in the future are higher than the peaks that we have now. So those are the two old components. The new component, the money, uh, modern monetary theory, basically says, well, you don't have to worry about cutting back during the, bad, the good times because debt doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's printed in your own money. Um, as long as people are, trust your currency, you can print as much as you want, and therefore you can pay all your debts with the money that you print and it won't cause a problem. Um, there are very few economists who believe that. Um, and there's very, very little data to support that. Uh, what we know is that countries like the United States can borrow more than countries like Greece um, before we get into trouble because of the strength of our overall industry, because of the fact that the rest of the world trusts our monetary system and is willing to lend us money at a low rate. But it doesn't give us unlimiting borrowing power. And we will reach a point where it will cause increases in interest rates uh, and slow down the growth in the economy more than the value of that well, we have lots of students here at Grand Valley, as you know, who they want to graduate job ready from day one. And one of the things I've learned from you, Paul, is you've pointed out how prior to the 1990s, when people lost their jobs during a recession, they often got the same job back when, when uh, the recession ended. Beginning in the 1990s, a different pattern emerges, and that's because jobs lost during the recession didn't exist when the recession was over. And it took people longer to get back into the workforce. And after, I think you, you've told me that after the 2007, 2009 Great Recession, it took almost a decade to get everybody back to work. So what's the outlook for our graduates during the current recovery? Yeah, I think number one, it's, it's not bad. It's never good to graduate during a recession. I graduated during a recession and my income, my lifetime income is lower for the rest of my life because of that. Uh, because your income is often based on what you earned before. So it's never good to graduate during a recession, but you don't get to pick that. Um, 
So what we do know is that we're worried about transactional jobs this time. We're worried about jobs that take a transaction from point A to point B, all right? Uh, those types of jobs are gonna have problems coming out of this recession. Why? Number one, we've all learned how to do transactions on our computer. We had to do that over the last two months. So people who shepherded those transactions, are you're going to need fewer of them. People who do uh, entry-level bookkeeping jobs, we're gonna need fewer of those. Uh, and we know that there's been changes in how we're going to be doing things like, like working. So uh, there's gonna be a higher percentage of people working from home. So do you need as many janitors and things? The good news is that those types of jobs tend not to be filled by college graduates, all right? College graduates tend to be in two or three more rungs up the ladder. And so right now that's really good news for them and probably means as we go into next summer, they're gonna have a lot of good opportunities. Very good, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And since we're talking about students and two students, please tell us how playing in your high school marching band <laughs> led you to a career in economics. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you read the Grand Valley, uh, the Grand Valley uh, uh, newsletters. In, yeah, in I, um, when I was in marching um, band. When I was my in, wife edits uh, Grand Valley Magazine. Yeah, so with the Grand <laughs> Valley Magazine. So we, uh, and um, because of the time, the times that we were allowed on the field, uh, we got off in the marching band after all the football players. But there was still a lot of time before school started. So everybody would go to the library. And unlike today, to read a newspaper, you actually had to get to a physical newspaper. And they were on those bamboo rods that you stuck, stuck the newspapers on at that time. By the time I got there, all the football players had grabbed newspapers. And of course, they grabbed all the newspapers that had sports pages. The only newspaper left was the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> For four years, I read the Wall Street Journal. Um, and when I got to college and was planning on going on in physics, I ended up taking economics and a double major with that because it was so easy. And it was so easy because of all those years reading the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and so I'm an economist today because I was in marching band. So our high schoolers out there listening, take note, read a good journal every day, and you too will be a great economist <laughs> or a great, you know, political analyst. I mean, there are all kinds of good things in those newspapers. Mm -hmm. Well, let's open our aperture a little bit wider now and look beyond West Michigan, beyond even the United States. How has the worldwide pandemic and you know, all the different ways around the world of coping with it and coping with uh, recovery, uh, I, I'm curious how it's impacted globalization and you know, this economic integration that we all got used to. For instance, you know, we heard again and again that those parts of our supply chains that run through China uh, are all gonna be overhauled because you know, we don't have the antibiotics that we need or other medicines potentially. Really dangerous and dumb way to have supply chains uh, when you're that vulnerable. What do you think is going to happen with this global integration after the pandemic on the other side? Well, you know, people expect radical change and I find radical change rarely happens. Um, so the last time we had this type of problem was after Fukushima in Japan where they had the nuclear accident after the tsunami. And automotive supply chains ran through that area and it caused, wreaked havoc. And as a result, firms increased the supply of parts they had 
to be able to weather a supply chain problem for a longer period of time. Um, what we're learning here is that you need a, to diversify your supply chain a little bit. Remember, diversifying a supply chain adds cost. So we should all expect that everything's gonna be more expensive. But what it means is that instead of having all of your parts coming from one place, you need to have them coming from two, three, or four places, um, if you can. And if you can't, then you have to have them someplace close to you so that you can control them. Um, so it's, there's gonna be a radical change, but I think that radical change, there's been a lot of hope that that's gonna cause a lot of onshoring. It will cause some onshoring where they bring some of the supply chain back to the United States. But it's more likely to say, we're gonna leave a little bit in China, we're gonna add some in India, and we're gonna put some in Germany. Uh, and we'll put a little bit in the United States. And that way, if there's a problem someplace in the world, the chances that all of those get taken out is very little. I think that's the lesson that's being learned. It's what I see happening right now. So I think, so, but it's also reinforced those political nationalist components because we've been able to lock down and say, you know, the problem is the rest of the world, we need to lock down. And we're seeing all over the world right now, these very nationalist runnings happening. Uh, and, uh, and I'll be very curious to see how, the, how much legs those have over the next year. Um, because we need this global supply chain in order to generate the wealth that we have. Without it, if we tried to make everything here, the wealth that we have in the United States would be much less and the poor people would be far worse off. Uh, so we need that world supply chain in order to, to keep that economy and that value of the U.S. economy. Well, this is really interesting because when you and I read Adam Smith, you know, the Wealth of Nations written in 1776, sure as part of your graduate education, it was part of mine. It was just a, an article of faith that free trade and specialization and comparative advantage would always end up benefiting countries in an international network. Is the pandemic beating that theory up? Mm, I don't think it's beating that theory up. It's showing uh, what we've seen over the last few years is that a theory uh, or, or, or that we know the comparative advantage generates more wealth. Uh, what we've worried about in recent times is the distribution of that wealth, uh, some of the legal issues around that. Uh, and, and, you know, there's mechanisms that economists have talked about over 30 years that take some of, within a particular country, there can be a winner and a loser, even though on average, you're always better off. There are policies you can do to handle that. And by and large, people hear the first part of Adam Smith and don't hear the second part. You have right. to worry about that distribution. Um, and, and that's something that, that I think that, I think that more likely the Black Lives Matter will deal more with that than the pandemic will. No doubt. You and I also talked over the years about the Austrian economists, which would be for our lay listeners, kind of an extreme libertarian viewpoint. Um, how are the Austrian economists going to fare? You know, if, if Hayek were alive today, or von Mises, or one of these uh, great uh, Austrian economists, uh, how's their thinking going to fare? Well, I mean, anybody who believes in a single theory 
is already showing that they have faith. It's, a, it's, it's almost religion. Um, there are parts of the Austrian theory that we see are very viable components, but the entire thing pieced together, if we had followed it exactly uh, in, under these conditions, uh, we would still be in a deep recession right now because we would be much more laissez-faire about what's going on and allow the creative destruction to, to destroy more businesses that would seem to be weak. Um, I don't think socially we can tolerate so I think that that social interaction, even if the theory were co is correct, um, trumps the theory. So I think that that um, I think the political divide that we're seeing right now uh, in the United States is probably going to continue to elevate that Austrian thought process, even after all this is done, despite those weaknesses. So, Paul, how have the triple shots? I mean, you've got this coronavirus pandemic, you've got the government shutdowns, you have urban unrest. How have these stresses changed the way you think about economics? Yeah. Well, once you throw in all those shocks all happening at the same time, it gets really hard to determine what's happens. Um, so, for me to do forecasting, um, 10 years ago, I just looked at economic numbers. Um, now, I've had to spend close to 200, 250 hours learning how to do uh, modeling of viruses. Uh, over the last few years, I've done hundreds of hours learning how to do modeling on, uh, on social justice issues. So, because those things now, as they come into play, interact with the economy and change the forecast. So, as an economist, I've now had to completely widen the types of topics I actually have to use to forecast the economy. Um, and it's made my life more complicated. It's made, it's made forecasts less accurate. Um, but hopefully it's moving society forward. And that's the critical thing. I mean, good economics should result in our thinking our way to, to more thriving. And to the extent we can do that, we all win. Everybody in the country wins if, if mm -hmm. as a society, we're thriving. Yeah. And I, my more optimistic side, I'm hoping that all these stresses are enabling us to think better through the economics, the politics, the social policy. They're all related. Yeah. Um, do you share that optimism? Yeah, I do. I mean, I was born in 1968. 1968 was a year that looked very much like this year. Um, it had the social, uh, the social strife happening. Um, it had a terrible war happening. The, the Life magazine from the week I was born, the centerfold was the number of, uh, were pictures of all the boys who died in the Tet Offensive. And the cover was Coretta Scott King crying. Um, so, um, you know, I've seen so much good over the course of my lifetime. And I was born in a year that, that had these horrendous uh, things happening and these big social movements happening. Uh, and, and it actually moved the US forward and moved them to a different, a different place and they were able to grow from that place. I expect that this will happen here too. Uh, and so I'm, I, am, I am an optimist to a fault. Because I actually I'd get to work with young people all the time in a college. And 
despite the fact that I think that they have issues, I'm sure I did when I was that age as well, uh, their innovation, their focus, their ability to see through problems always amazes me. And I know that they'll move it farther than I did in my lifetime. So you don't have a dismal personality to go with the dismal science. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm dismal because I say it like it is. And so basically Republicans <laughs> and Democrats hate me because, because <laughs> it's the economy I'm looking at. I'm not looking at it through an, a Republican lens or a Democrat's lens. Well, speaking of which, one of your interesting observations that I read about recently in the aforementioned uh, interview, uh, I think it was an interview uh, in Grand Valley Magazine, as a matter of fact, uh, you observed that during the first years of the Trump presidency, the economic growth of red counties around the United States was ahead of that of blue counties. And you explained that, that people in red counties were more optimistic than those in blue counties who tended to be more pessimistic. And the blue county consumption and investment were correspondingly lower, more depressed. You've also observed that with some of the progressive candidates proposing far-reaching changes to our system, that people might be fearing the unintended consequences that could come out of upending some of the systems we've known. So much is, in, is up in the air. So would you like to venture a prediction on how much the economy will influence citizens when they cast their ballots this fall for president and Congress and about 33 senators? Oh, um, you know, all you have is the past to look at on this. And, and we certainly have lots of other drivers that may knock the economy out of the driver's seat, but it's always been the economy uh, that drives this. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was asked who's going to win the election in March of the election year last time when Trump was elected, I said, well, whoever the Republican candidate is, because that's what the economic model says. Um, and in fact, that's what happened. Interesting. Um, Whose model did you use for that prediction? Uh, one of my favorites is the Ray Fair model, which uh, he wrote a, uh, a book called predicting presidential elections. Uh, and it's, it's a simple model. It works pretty simply. And he's got an online calculator, so you can put in your numbers and you can see it. Um, I think the economy will matter. Uh, and to the extent that it matters, is going to matter as to the number of people over the age of 35 who, who vote compared to the number under the age of 35. So notice that above 35 now has millennials in it. And millennials' behavior patterns are changing as they get older um, because they're, they're having to worry about all the things that all the rest of us are worried about. Um, so as that proportion under the age of 35 votes to a greater extent, then we expect the economy becomes a lower step and social issues and environmental issues raise. Um, so we'll be looking at that voter turnout, particularly in the primaries, to see whether the economy moves off the center. You are teeing yourself up for the questions that are coming out. I mean, we do have uh, people now who've queued up to ask questions. Let's bring them into the conversations. A viewer asks, as if on cue from what you were just saying, what are the long-term effects on millennials who have now experienced two once-in-a-lifetime recessions? And how about Gen Z? 
getting ready to go to college, start work, and so forth? Well, Gen good question. Thank you. Gen Z was already being fiscally conservative um, uh, and much different than the millennials. Uh, but realistically, we have millennials who have started their, their careers during recessions here in the United States. Uh, and that's going to lead to them having lower, lower total wealth over the entire, their entire lifetime. Um, and that increases the chances that we have social unrest within the country. So we know that that's, that's an issue. Uh, we know that it's affected Gen Z by causing them to be much more conservative in their spending. Um, I always laugh about it from a college point of view. The difference between a millennial and a Gen Z to, to a college is millennials, you always showed them the climbing wall because they wanted to see the climbing wall and they wanted to see that you had amenities that they could use. Gen Z, you hide the climbing wall because <laughs> that you spent money on things that, that they might not use. Um, so uh, I think it's already happened. I think they've already changed the perception of things. And I think it will hasten the millennial move from apartments to, to houses. Um, and there'll be a greater demand for houses because of that. Uh, it was already starting to happen, uh, but when they all got stuck home, they decided that two bedroom apartment above the bar wasn't such a great idea anymore. And maybe they needed a little bit more space. So I think it will actually speed up the number of millennials looking to get into housing. Interesting. Have another viewer asks, how likely do you think it is that the government's going to issue another round of stimulus checks? Well, from an economic point of view, it's questionable whether you should do so or not. I mean, maybe, maybe not. Um, I have an economist friend who I argue with and he believes for strongly we should. Um, I'm thinking, eh, maybe, uh, but it's an election year. And I promise you that both sides need to show that they've been helping anybody who was hurt. So there will be something. I don't know what it will be. Uh, I don't know how big it will be. But I think the game theory tells me that, that they're going to have another stimulus because they're worried about the economy being what drives that election result in November. And they want to make sure that they've given the voters what they need. It's going to be more of a political than an economic decision, no doubt. I think at this point, yes. Uh, unless we see resurgences of the virus in ways that, that we haven't yet, and that's very, very possible. I mean, right now the virus seems to be running through a current of young people. So here in Michigan in the last month, uh, nearly 50% of our cases have been under the age of 40, uh, with the biggest growth happening really in that 20 and 30 year old sets. Uh, so what we're seeing are those young people really starting to say, okay, I'm not seeing any effects and I'm gonna run around and do things. Uh, and as they do that, if this causes a second hit, then we're in for a wild ride. And by wild ride, I mean a real depression because we don't have the money, we don't have the, 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 the arsenal to fight a second shutdown in the economy. We're in such uncharted territory. It's going to really be crazy how this plays out if we have another round of the, the pandemic. And certainly we're seeing in the South, Southwest states that, I mean, we're seeing two things. We're seeing geographic areas experience this pandemic in a way the rest of the country has not. And we're seeing younger people, as you point out, uh, showing more signs, uh, higher numbers, 
having the, pan the, the virus uh, compared to the earlier iteration of it. There's a, there are a lot of unknowns out there, but economists try to model with these unknowns and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it works out. We have another question. Do you predict that this recession and other stresses will have a great impact on the cost of education? Good question. Here we are on a college campus. Um, it's going to change what education is. It's going to change your options. Um, uh, we're going to see a lot of small schools, small independent schools go out of business um, or, uh, or merge with other schools. Uh, you're going to see small liberal arts schools say, hey, maybe I need a professional program. Um, we've seen that already with Calvin College, who's, who's adding a business school, I think, if I remember correctly. You know, you're going to see, uh, you're going to see more variety in the delivery methods that universities provide. Um, less competition, more variety in delivery methods, uh, and a higher a higher premium on skills needed by the by those who are employing people, I think will uh, will not result in big decreases in the cost of education. What will change is the value of the degree. So what we're seeing is that people aren't seeing the value in that 120 credits. They're saying, really, what I need are these 15 credits at this point in my life. And this 15 credits at this point in my life, and this 10 credits over here to fulfill these other things. And so I think what you'll see are the chunks of school broken up into smaller pieces um, and that you can take them at different points in your life so it won't be such a burden at one moment in your life as it is right now. So they'll bundle, they'll, they'll bundle courses together and I guess the terminology is then you, you stack the bundles and that's how you build a portfolio of your training to present in the marketplace right. that presumably then would have a, uh, a value that, that, that clarifies exactly what the student can do. And so it, it's, it's a great communication tool for the students. Of course, I'm a liberal arts guy. I hope right. that the liberal arts do not suffer in this process. I mean, one of the things that, that we know about education is everybody says teach critical thinking. There's, there's, no, there's no way to teach critical thinking. What you have to do is teach a bunch of different things and the critical thinking evolves around that. Um, and so uh, without doing that, and, and, and the way we've done it at places like Grand Valley is through that, that liberal education, uh, uh, liberal arts education, where we, we expose people to a variety of points of view and that causes them to then have to think about those things that generates that critical thinking that they can then use. So if we compartmentalize things too small, then yes, that will become a problem. But if students aren't doing what employers want, then we'll have to adjust that again. A viewer asks, how does leadership have a role in economics? How does leadership have a role in economics? Um, you know, what we do know about economics is uncertainty is far worse than a bad plan. All right, let me say that again. Uncertainty is far worse than a bad plan. What you need is leaders who point the way and help us understand what's going on. 
our goals are, what we need to be working towards and create not consensus, because you're not going to create consensus in the United States, uh, but you create an understanding of why we're moving in a direction that we're moving. Then businesses know how to invest, consumers know how to, to purchase, and it greases that economic engine. So we need our leaders to, to help cut through the uncertainty by providing a direction for us. If you don't have that and you have uncertainty, building on uncertainty, the reaction is, I'm gonna hold on to my wealth right now because I don't know what's gonna happen and the economy slows down. So it's really, really important to have good leadership and good leadership that communicates why we're moving in a direction that we are. Because sometimes that direction is not gonna be what I want as an individual. But if I understand that for society, it might be a good direction, um, I may cut you some slack. So I think that's, that's hard for a leader to do. And it means a leader has to move away from using polls. They have to move towards, toward, because if you're using polls, you now create uncertainty because depending on what the poll is, you're jumping around and you're changing your policy. So it doesn't mean not be inflexible, but it means you need to be as a leader to help people understand why we're moving in a direction, not telling them that we are. Um, and that's a hard thing to do. Uh, and in my personal opinion, it's been decades since I've seen it at the federal level. So. Our best leaders do not need a poll to know what the right thing to do is, that's for sure. That was a great assortment of questions that you just fielded from our viewers. Is there anything else you would like to touch on before we wrap up? Uh, you know, I don't think there's anything I really need to touch on. Right now, it really looks like, like we're going to end, that you get into the middle of summer, and we're going to be back at what's called a mid-level recession. And it's going to take another year to get out of that mid-level recession. So don't look at unemployment numbers for the next two months because those, two, those are going to be looking at the past. We're already well past what they're going to be telling you. So don't look at them. Don't listen to them. Way to go. A very clear explanations. Thank you, Professor Paul Isley, for being a delightful guest on today's live Lunch and Learn webcast. Viewers now can appreciate why your expertise is so sought out not only in the classroom, but also in our community. And we hope you will come back after the election and help us diagnose whatever happens at, during the election in November. And I invite those who've tuned in to fill out the brief survey and let us know what you thought of today's program. I also invite you to zoom in or join us on Facebook at the same time Thursday, uh, June 25th, for our next live Lunch and Learn webcast featuring Megan Saul, who is the Deputy City Manager of Wyoming and on our GVSU Board of Trustees. But I knew her when. I knew Megan when she was a Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy Fellow and had the privilege of helping in her formation as a leader. So tell your friends and colleagues about us. Until Thursday, stay tuned in all of our Houndstein Center offerings and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hauenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. 
To learn more about the Howenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.